Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm here with our editors, Wolf Tybee and Ash Milton. Hey. Hey, pleasure as always. And we're joined this week by Gene Fan, who wrote the recent Palladium piece called The American Dream is Alive in China. Um, that's going to be the subject of the podcast today. So, Gene, just to get us started, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and, and what inspired you to, to write the piece? Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, so a bit about me. Um, I'm uh, a psychology researcher in the Bay Area, um, and I'm Chinese-American. Um, my family and I have been uh, going back to China every year since we moved to Canada first and then to the U.S., um, after my parents got their graduate degrees. Um, and being in the Bay Area, being in the U.S., um, over the last couple of years, I've noticed sort of the rhetoric around China change a lot, um, in a way that has been really interesting in contrast with my experience in China. Um, and I, I mostly go back to see family, but there's still a lot that you can see sort of just being around the people. Um, and... You know, as a psychology researcher, that really interests me because um, there's clearly so much baggage on both sides um, in various ways. Um, and so I think a lot of my background is basically thinking through what being an American is, um, thinking through how to balance that with my Chinese ancestry um, and with my family, most of whom are still in China, um, and also like, you know, trying to sort of paint a fair picture for both sides of um, the audience. So one thing I noticed is that this piece in particular was interpreted in, in a lot of different ways. So I think what would be a useful exercise here is for each of us to kind of give our, our vision of what we saw in the piece when we were writing it or, or editing it. Um, and then, and then we can kind of further, further discuss what that, what that actually means. Wolf, why don't, why don't you start? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I guess my first contact with this piece was actually last year when Gene came back from China and was starting to tell a different story than I had ever heard before, which was really interesting. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. Um, the like, like, I had sort of um, written off China. I mean, maybe that's not fair, but I, I like... I kind of hadn't been really paying attention or really internalizing the situation. And, and she came back like a year ago and started talking about, was it a year ago? Yeah, it was 2018. Okay. Yeah. Um, and started talking about just, um, you know, all these really positive experiences, things changing quickly and for the better and in many different small ways, life just kind of getting better, um, on many dimensions and, and just like the the sense of competence and optimism in China, and so that like it stuck with me, and it kind of like got me really thinking about this. And I guess what I took from that, and and then that's I guess recently turned into this piece, um, this article. Um, what I took from that, and and then from the article was basically, you know, this is an example of kind of competent government today. And it, it's like, it, there's a big contrast, seeing that sort of contrast with the problems that we're having in the United States. Like, I'm not, I'm not like totally, uh, I guess, a pessimist on, on the United States. I'm, I'm obviously here. Uh, I think this thing can be made to work. But like, 
there's a lot of problems and you know you look outside and there's potholes and there's like kind of social disorder and and all these things and in many cases kind of getting worse rolling rolling blackouts right now rolling blackouts recently um and and you sort of like actually that was funny i had used that term previously and then and then wolf jumped in and be like but it's not rolling it's because rolling is a particular definition and then you know a week later pg and e comes out with an announcement that look, we're probably going to have to do this on a regular schedule over the next 10 years. That's ridiculous. Oh, my God. Anyways, um, I mean, that whole situation is interesting to discuss, uh, like, who's actually at fault there, but let's not get into that. Anyways, so, like, there's... We have this situation in America where, you know, in my humble opinion, we need more competent government. And, uh, you know, we look across the pond over at China and, and, like for the last 40 years or something they've been having fun with some competent government and seeing what that can do um and and you know gene gene's experience kind of gave me this this window into that of like okay wow this is real and it's it's not just in the numbers it's not just abstract it's this really concrete acceleration of quality of life and i found that really interesting and then looking so then i I guess I don't want to go on too much length here, but the big kind of takeaways were we need to get serious about strategic competition with China, because if we're sitting here kind of twiddling our thumbs and arguing about, you know, matters of less import, while China is like pouring bazillion tons of concrete every year and and like tons of steel and building things and, and actually becoming the center of the world economy, um, and, and, and potentially like a shining beacon of actual quality of life. Uh, you know, not that it's gotten anywhere near that stage yet, but, uh, I think trajectories are important. Um, that if we're in that position, that that's like a worrying position to be in. Cause we're not actually well coordinated with China. We don't necessarily get along very well. Um, I don't, I don't want us to like fall behind. Right. And so that's the first big takeaway. The second big takeaway is wow, it's really possible to do a lot better. And I don't think the things that China are doing well is is like directly just a trade-off with the, against the things that we do well or, or directly caused by the things that China isn't doing well. So there's obviously like the, the kind of human rights abuses, the various kind of authoritarian oppression, some of which um, I think we we overrate and some of which is is uh i think quite warranted the the position we take um but yeah looking at that it it just like gave me this picture of okay there's much more is possible in government and i think we need to be really studying that and learning from it partially so we don't fall behind and partially so that you know we can actually reach kind of new heights of of accomplishment anyways that was my takeaway um what about you guys Uh, I can go next here. So I found this piece quite interesting in a different way. Um, you know, I, I've spent a lot of years of my life in Vancouver, uh, obviously a large Chinese community there, a lot of young uh, Chinese students, uh, immigrants, people working. Likewise, I've talked to a lot of people from Canada and other Western countries who've gone to China for work uh, and other purposes. And so the the idea of life getting better on like a very personal level in terms of day-to-day technology and experience wasn't new to me. Um, I thought the piece was kind of an excellent insight uh, as to what 
it's like living there, you know, growing up there or going there frequently um, and just seeing life change. And uh, what surprised me, and there are kind of two takeaways I had as well. So the first one, uh, when I was looking at some of the criticism, uh, I think what surprised me was actually how many people are out there uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, in other Western countries who really don't seem to understand this aspect of like, Chinese life today um, you know it, it's easy especially if you're on the west coast in North America where you have uh, significant Chinese diasporas to you know forget that a lot of the country doesn't have the same experience or the same immediate um, sense of connections uh, with uh, China and by virtue of that um, when when people might read about improvements, it's in it's in media, right? It, it's like oh, you know, development GDP growth is really high, uh, or they might read about tech companies or trade wars. But the extent to which daily life has gotten better uh, seems to be pretty alien. And there's an interesting uh, on the psychological level almost response where uh, people were almost threatened by this idea. Um, in, in the sense where, you know, we, we discussed somewhat uh, that prosperity was an important aspect of American legitimacy. Right. And if, if and I think, you know, really the last time in the 20th century that anyone saw the Soviet Union as a, a competitor um, in economic terms, like a real alternative model to American society was what maybe in the sixties under Khrushchev, certainly after that, it was viewed as, as stagnant as declining and so on. Um, a military threat. Yes, but not one that was going to economically outcompete the U S uh, anytime soon or without a lot of reforms. The notion that you can have a high standard of living, one that matches or could even surpass the American standard in a country that completely rejects what America views to be the priors of that kind of prosperity is obviously extremely threatening. And, uh, you know, I, I understand that from the perspective of people in, in foreign policy, uh, in economics, but even, you know, normal readers, people I was seeing who, who, as far as I know, are just professionals or, you know, they're not involved in that kind of politics. Even there, there was a sense of kind of uh, shock or, or a, a disdain for the idea that that might be possible. So that surprised me. Uh, I also, I think and, the, and I felt that too. Yeah, that, yeah. That it's, yeah. it's uh, I think in a way, you know... As Wolf was saying, um, to admit that one can learn something is not to say one wholesale adopts everything someone else does or that one can't condemn or critique or oppose. But I, I think it's been decades since the American psyche had any sense that it could learn from anyone else, really. I mean, maybe the closest you get is kind of elements in American political life, which maybe look at uh, Sweden or, or the European social democracies and want to bring America more in that direction. But that's a, a firm ally from the American perspective. That's not a rival. Um, China is not that sort of uh, well, the other country. Thing, I think the other thing going on there is like the Americans who, who kind of laud those systems somewhat misrepresent uh, how they actually work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but and, but that's I think that's also just a you know, tropes are going to just occur in this sort of yeah. thing. I think the difference is that um, 
the, the tropes when it comes to the European countries that some Americans might look at are fairly well established. The positions for and against are pretty well established. This is not the case with China. The, the other thing that um, jumped out at me about this piece, right? Uh, I was thinking a bit of America in the 1950s. And, uh, you know, one of the critiques is like, oh, well, you know, maybe some uh, Chinese have a sense that the country's doing really well, but look at all the abuses happening. This obviously negates any sense that, that things are good. And I was thinking of, well, America in the 50s, you know, this is what most people consider the the post-war golden age, the 50s, maybe the early 60s. And... I I don't think one can make that simple statement because clearly the average family had a better standard of living than it almost ever had in history at that period of time. And that occurred side by side with a lot of uh, inequalities in American life, abuses, um, and I mean, that's without even getting to American foreign policy. Both these things could occur side by side. And so I think that taking the experience laid out in this piece... Uh, it's not something that our other pieces we've done on Xinjiang, for example, contradict. Both these things can occur side by side. Yeah, exactly. And when I say that we can compare to America in the 50s, that, I think, strengthens that argument. Uh, you can have a sense of confidence and prosperity, even while very dark things are happening in the same country. Yeah, I want to jump in there. Um, you said a lot of what I wanted to say, Ash, but I'll, I'll note that while we're making these comparisons, it's not a form of of whataboutism as in you know the the uh, america of the 1950s pre mid 60s civil rights uh, reforms um you know had a lot of these same problems and so we should just excuse whatever china's doing or it's not not as bad or it's it's perfectly fine morally speaking that's not the kind of argument we're right, making exactly. at all i mean it's not a piece of whataboutism and it's not a piece of spite either. We don't publish spite-motivated content. What, what I saw the piece as primarily doing was um, offering a perspective that was more first-person and psychological of the, the um, real movement and change of, of optimism across countries. So, for example, one of the narratives that's been alive recently in the Bay and other parts of the U.S. is, is the importance of optimism and to make sure that, that um, we maintain it at a certain level and, and, and don't lose heart, don't lose hope. Um, but that is coming at a time when there is a optimism crisis, and that's especially why we're, we're having these discussions now. But in, in China, because a lot of the structural factors are in place and there is a lot of rapid progress, at least relatively speaking. Um, the optimism there is is seemingly much more natural. Um, yeah, the thing, the quip I always make with optimism is like optimism is rational belief in large upsides, and if large yes. upsides are not possible, optimism is irrational and not going to happen. Right. So, like the reason people are optimistic in China is because large upsides are possible in China. The, when people are optimistic in the United States, it's because they believe that large upsides are possible. And there are places where that is possible in the United States. But I think increasingly uh, with with our sort of optimism crisis, I think it's like underemphasized that that crisis is actually a crisis of possibility and not just of, of belief. Another thing I'd like to note here on a meta level is that uh, the U.S. is perfectly 
happy and willing to uh, make allies with non-democratic countries with Saudi Arabia (laughs) and others with terrible human rights records and unbelievable atrocities. Yeah, let's talk Uh, about Yemen for a minute. Yeah, yeah. well, and (laughs) once once that decision is made, there tends to be a corresponding um, aggressive public relations campaign in the American media to normalize that country and make it okay because normally, at least from a sort of like naive perspective, the average American, um, our allies are supposed to be democracies. So I was looking at some recent work on this where uh, students would read small vignettes on on countries and they were much more likely to make the claim that they must have been our allies if it was revealed that the country was a democracy as right. opposed to not, even if that didn't actually well, track. Well, well, that is kind of how it works. That I is mean, exactly, like, like, of course, Countries exactly within our sphere of influence who we call our allies, uh, we we find ways to set up democracies in those countries yeah. and so they become... Or to put it differently, to be an American <laughs> ally is a prerequisite of democracy. Right. So right. so in, in this moment, especially as we have a trade war uh, or whatever else, you, or, or whatever you would like to, to call that relationship now with, with China... Um, Clearly, the order of the day is not to, like, we, we are not in an explicit, uh, friendly alliance with China. And so this effort has not come about in the American media. And so there is no reason why your average person would necessarily have particularly positive uh, feelings towards China. And instead, the, the more negative things would be made more salient, as, a, as opposed to, for example, other allies where we decide to look the other way. Now, again, this isn't to excuse anything, uh, any, any of the, you know, human rights abuses, atrocities, anything, but it's important to note that any major state will inevitably, uh, one way or another, engage in human rights atrocities um, and breaches, uh, many of them very egregious. And so at that point, the question is not necessarily, I mean, you can haggle over orders of magnitude and, and orders of magnitude are actually important to take into account. Of course, there can be, uh, importantly, more and less abuses, certainly. But I think it's fair, it's probably fair to make the claim that all major states uh, have, inexcu- like, on some level, absolutely inexcusable records. What, what do you mean inexcusable? I mean, like, the, the actual reality of statecraft is, like, and the, and the reality the, of the way the world yes, works this, is that, like, this, a lot though, of people are getting screwed, right? This is, and, this and is so from there's the, always going to be that involved in, it, it's not like it's morally, uh, the state has made moves that necessitate that it's it's that like the state is operating in an environment where like some level of that is just happening and hap- and kind of necessary yes what i mean is assuming you dissolve all role-based morality distinctions between uh individuals and people at the level of state then yes if everyone is just an individual for example and we all have the same corresponding rights privileges obligations then then yes, this is why people call uh, a lot of state leaders war criminals, for example. Yeah, well, I or mean, or they're in the same room as a war criminal. And inexcusable that, that whole, as in that only whole states idea, can possibly get away with doing this. Right, right, right. right. This is in a, yeah. to a certain and perhaps extent, only large states, not even all states. Anyways, I'm I'm curious to hear uh, Gene kind of more on your perspective around the article. What were you what you were thinking? 
what your impression was like before the fact, after the fact of just just more on on your perspective on the article. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it, so. <laughs> I mean, I assume you um, would know something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think for me it was a very, like, um, I want to say, like, halfway between intimate and vulnerable piece to write. Right. Um, I think it was representing an opinion that is relatively new for me um, with respect to China. I think it's it's a lot more straightforwardly positive on China than I've historically been um and and I think because of how stark the contrast is in China um which contrast are you talking about the quality of life contrast you mean like um, between now and say 10 years ago yeah um now and in five years ago okay. um maybe even like now and three years ago um it just depends on sort of um what threshold you're looking at there um right. i think i think because of those changes i think it it felt shocking to me and you know ash was talking about how it felt threatening to some people and i, I would say it, it definitely felt threatening to me seeing that progression over the years um and so i think writing this piece was very um revealing um and represented what I knew to be an unpopular view with a lot of people because I've, I've talked to people about this view and mm -hmm. the reaction that I've gotten has been, um, you know, a lot of people I'm friends with obviously want to to be in touch with what's what's actually happening, but there's reluctance, right? You can sense the the feeling of, okay, like, if this is happening, then, like, I'll spend some time sort of pondering over it, but... Um, and so, so to some extent I was expecting to get pushback on the article and, um, and we did and that, that was okay. Um, <laughs> um, I basically think that people would not have responded that way at all to you in person because part of this is just the dynamics the of you read the title, you read the description, um, you're a little mad because of the blizzard situation and the NBA situation. Well, it's a touchy subject. It's I mean, a touchy I, subject. I think, I think one of the things that the article did, and, and one of the reasons I was excited about it, was it was a nuke dropped on the American ego. <laughs> and, it like, Americans are notoriously, like, over-bloated in their egotism and, like, well, so self-regard nationally. Here's one really important thing to note which is that the American ego has not adjusted to the reality of the diplomatic map. So if you look at a map of the world of countries who are uh, neutral against or in support of how China's handling things in Xinjiang. Right. That, that map was brutal when I saw that. So just to be clear, like there, there's this map going around with, uh, you know, just which countries support China's policies in Xinjiang, which countries are against it and which countries are neutral. Countries against it is basically the Anglosphere and Western Europe. Not even all of Europe, Western Europe. Um, countries for it is like most of the rest of the world. Um, and there's a few, and then there's like neutral countries in between. And it, like... Which it, isn't to necessarily say that the countries on China's side are... Uh, completely, like, morally comfortable. Yeah, I mean, it's like Russia and, like... This is just diplomacy, like, right? This Russia is diplomacy. and so on. But, but it is... It, it, the point that it shows is, yeah. like, look, th there's very few people who believe this 
this like line we're spouting these days. Um, or abroad. even if they believe it, it doesn't necessarily have any bearing on shifting power relations in the world. Yeah, but but I mean, like, do you think they believe in human rights in Russia? Like, they don't, right? Um, well, look, the China. This hasn't just happened with China. Uh, you know, some time back when you're covering Venezuela. Uh, and, and there was competition there uh, to oust Maduro uh, from his position, and you the, there was there were similar maps going around of which countries were still recognizing Maduro and which were recognizing the American-backed rival. I mean, the majority of countries were still backing Maduro, even if you just look at the the major the great powers, if you want. Uh, most of them were as well. It was likewise the Anglosphere. It was parts of Western Europe. I don't think it was actually even all of Western Europe. Um, mm -hmm. so there, the, the American narrative on both of these topics gives you the impression that, uh, you know, the, the, the bad guys, right? Uh, Iran, Russia, China are kind of, they're, they're sticking together, but everyone else, right? The international community, uh, is, is on board, but even this, this sort of entity that America likes to invoke the international community, most of them weren't even on board then and aren't on board now. So... Uh, you're in absolutely about, right. The in, ego can't handle this. In about five to ten years, the the if if present trends continue, the phrase international community is is going to stop being useful. Well, entirely. It's going to be a joke. Like it's not going to mean much of anything. It's you won't be able to have a credible claim that uh, for like for example, would you say that the international community is with or against China on Xinjiang? Like, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because mm -hmm. if you're if you're talking about... Well, it's obviously against. I mean, the international community means the United States and its allies. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that. well, it, that's increasingly going to become the case. I mean, for some time... Well, it just it, it's always been the case. It just used to be well, the United States had more allies. <laughs> sure, sure. But, but again, um, that phrase is going to stop... Uh, containing the broader it's going to stop containing legitimacy right like yeah, yeah. the the, the, but, the sort of like trickery of sort of broader influence i yeah. guess the, the semantic trickery going on, on there is going to go away in yeah. five to so, ten years so i mean so all of this is just like again like the point was basically people were getting touchy about this i think one of the reasons people were getting touchy was because it like it actually kind of prodded an open wound yes which is like americans are vaguely aware of the fact that america is in decline and they don't and, want it shoved in their faces yeah because but, but what, i think because what good would that do but i'll tell you what good that will do that will tell you that uh right now we have an opportunity and a decision to make and if we don't reorient ourselves in some sense, it will be too late, and I think this this chart, which yeah. maybe we'll we'll link to it or or post it somewhere, this chart uh, is not going away. This this chart of, yeah, it's, in it's, support of and against Xinjiang is not going away. It's likely to get worse for us. I would say five ten well, years. Well, for for the international community, for the international community, uh, it's going to get another worse. Whole question, um, and doubling down on the existing approach i think is actually going to cause is going to drive away more countries into the new block well, and more and more domestic legitimacy let's not forget that there's a crisis of domestic legitimacy in the united states a yes. lot of it tied up with this particular uh like increasingly false form of rhetoric that we deploy against china and other countries and and like that it, it's not just about china right it's the whole 
edifice of how we do legitimacy. I think the distinction the distinction that needs to be drawn here is between learning from other countries and upgrading your own versus loyalty to other regimes. Ironically, this is something where the U.S. is actually resembling more the Soviet Union and pre-Deng China in their stagnant periods rather than later. Because, you know, at those periods, it was basically impossible to upgrade because any substantive upgrades would be painted by your political enemies as treasonous loyalty toward America. Uh, And we seem to be in a situation where if you look at other countries and ask the question, well, what could we learn? You are immediately accused of of loyalty. But I I wanted, uh, you know, in our our pre-show chat, I I made the point of... uh, Looking at FDR uh, as an example here, right? And so when he was dealing with the, the Depression, when he was implementing the New Deal policies, he had clearly learned from some of the, you know, there were socialist movements he learned from, other movements, and he, he learned, he upgraded his strategy, but he was never loyal to these regimes. And in fact, you know, he went to war. Uh, with a number, a number of these regimes and his successor pres- presidents, uh, who continued some of his programs, were obviously uh, one of the main players in the Cold War. So there's a big difference that has to be drawn there. And I- I'd go so far as to say that being able to learn and upgrade from people you consider your rivals and opponents is actually a sign of health in a governing yeah, and, class. And I guess all of this said, I would say at one level lower, if we talk in terms of in terms of people rather than just in, in terms of countries. Um, one thing I found really interesting, um, you know, Jenna was talking about the international community as sort of a um, fading concept. Um, one thing I found really interesting is sort of a big split in the audience reaction to the piece where on one hand you have, I have all of these sort of Twitter people spamming me and then on the other hand um, I have I mean, you're asking you how much you got paid by this. <laughs> right, <thing>. right. <laughs> but damn it, I'm like, I should have negotiated. Yeah, um, really should. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, I have DMs, I have emails, I have people like mentors at in Silicon Valley, professors at Stanford reaching out to me being like, hey, thank you for representing this view. It's, you know, it's been my experience too. Um, and And one thing I found really interesting is the way that the claims I'm making in the piece land for these two sides where I think I'm not making like so bold of a claim to say, Hey, I went to China previously. It was sort of shitty. And now it's quite a bit better. In fact, it's, it's crossed an important like lifestyle threshold. I'm like, I this, this might be good to live in. Um, and, and for the people who messaged me being like, Hey, this was a great piece. That was the claim they took away from it. Um, it was like, yeah, things have gotten notably better. At least we can say that for this axis. And that was more the claim that, that I was trying to make, right? You know, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not discounting all of the other things that are happening in China, but you have to recognize that China is a, a big place with many people. And, you know, it seems like the many people story has gotten dropped from the China narrative. We used to talk about the billions of people in China. Now when I bring up the billions of people, people are, you know... I have a question for you here, Gene. In terms of the people who... Um were taking what, you know, as you were saying, the, the, the correct interpretation maybe of the piece. Do you think that they were... What proportion of them do you think see China as adversarial? Like, are they are they 
actually more dovish on China or are they sort of open to learning but still see it as a threat? I'm interested to hear a bit of, about the mindset here. Yeah, this is an important question. Um, yeah, so a lot of the people who reached out to me um, or who I got feedback on the piece on um, are people who have done business in China and they're Americans who um, have either gone there to scout business opportunities or um, just sort of in the course of their career. Um, there have been sort of more natural collaborations. Um, and and also just some people who visited China, although unless they visited very recently, it's a bit of a different story in terms of quality mm-hmm. of life. Um, that, they, that, just just to interrupt a minute, yeah, that's yeah. like one thing that, that struck me was the the rate of change that you're talking about. Yeah. It's like in the West, we're used to like, you know, I, I take the subway uh and look out the window and it's like the same view it it's always is right like yeah. it never it doesn't change and we're like just kind of used to the fact that the world doesn't change the world's just the same yeah and then like oh yeah maybe occasionally we get some new software on our phones or whatever but like it's another camera yeah it, it, <laughs> another another camera another now camera it's got lens. three cameras on yeah. um yeah and it's it's like we're used to just not seeing change. And then like hearing the story of like, yeah, last year there was nothing there. And now there's like a city or like, I mean, it's not that yeah, stark, yeah, yeah. Not it's not that stark, but like, like things, things growing very quickly, like very quickly changing to no cash, very quickly changing to like yeah. different forms of transportation. Like, yeah. Coffee delivery in two minutes to your door. Um, yeah. And, and all the small things, all the small things, which, which add up. Um, and I would, I would just sort of add to Wolf's point about, um, when I say in the piece, like, my sort of binary experience really happened between 2017 and 2018, like, I'm not kidding. Before 2017, my view was pretty consistently, like, you know, going from, this is, like, honestly, like, quite a bad place to live when I was um, visiting um, as a girl, to this is, like, better, but, like, uh, you know, like, this is still, like, quite bad. Um, and, and I think, you know, Ash with respect to your your question, um, this pace of change matters a lot because um, the perspectives that I got on China and on my piece were quite different depending on whether people had been to China this year or last year or three years ago. Right. Um, and, you know, when a couple of years ago, when you have a bunch of the, the newer apps and um, services coming out, there was, you know, a big shift there. And some people were, like, quite unhappy about it. I have a friend who... Um, is a bit of a pop star in China and he was pissed that like it was difficult to get around if you didn't have a WeChat account of a particular type because you weren't like a Chinese citizen with like Mm -hmm. a Chinese bank card and whatever and then you know people who've been there in 2010 it's a a whole different story because in 2010 it's it's a lot messier um, and it's a lot more of like a gut repulsive reaction Um, and so I would say like for, for the for the people who have been there in the last couple of years, um, it's not, it's just not an adversarial relation, right? It's, there's a lot of collaboration. There's, um, just a sense of like, these people are trying to do a good thing for the, themselves and their country, um, on 
as on a, on the whole. Um, you speaking there of the the Chinese or the people coming the, from America doing business with the Chinese? The people who are doing business in China, um, okay. or who, who yeah. But it that. sounds like in general, um, then the, I, the I people think, who yeah. you're seeing correctly uh, from your view interpreting the piece are people with exposure to China in some form, essentially. Uh, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and and that that's look. I, I had touched on this earlier, but that's more or less. I think my experience as well, uh, you know, it, it sounds like from what you're saying, I was reading the piece more or less as you had intended it to be read. And I think part of that was sure. my own exposure. And it opens this question where, um, it, you know, and most most smaller countries know how this works. So Japan, for example, when it was developing, even now puts a lot of stock into uh, creating sort of Western literacy um, among its um, professionals and vice versa, going abroad and trying to create sort of literacy about doing business with Japan uh, and other countries. And China wants to do this as well, clearly. Uh, and we've seen the, the Confucius Institutes. Uh, we've seen them embark on these various initiatives, but there's big problems with them. Espionage, uh, surveillance among diaspora communities. You know, we're seeing these headlines more and more um, and it's going to create uh, this opening uh, almost where it's going to be extremely necessary for uh, the American and Western political and professional classes to have a familiarity with China, with the, the, the kind of public consciousness and there now things are done. But uh, that has to be built somehow in a way that isn't just a vehicle for uh, foreign influence and that doesn't come with all these potentially subversive tendencies attached, meaning it somehow has to be created in-house. Yeah, so, so an interesting um, riff on the sort of loyalty concept, something I wanted to add to this discussion is, um, so there's this big difference between kind of admiring someone and trying to learn from them and seeing the good things that they're doing and whether you're actually friends with them. And, like, you can have people who are unfortunately your enemies due to historical and circumstantial factors um, where it's like you're just kind of not going to get along in the current state and yet you're still able to learn from them, see what they're doing, understand them and, and, um, and have like a positive view of a lot of what they're doing. Um, and that I think is something that's really underappreciated right now. Like you see, Again, it comes back to like seeing the polarization of the responses. It tends to be like the China hawks were like mad that there was anything good going on in China. And the people who are who were like aware of the, the, the good things going on in China. Um, I, I, it didn't sound like many of them were also at the same time, like taking a, a confrontational stance towards China. No. And. And like the re the geopolitical reality might be like a con a confrontational stance, and yet we still have to synthesize that with a correct, uh, nuanced, appreciative understanding of what's going on in China, and and that's like I think a tension that um, I would like to see resolved. I, I'm not sure it will ever be like the public will ever be like that nuanced, but. It seems like the kind of thing that no. that the the answer is no, <laughs> but we still have to have those discussions at least somewhere. Yeah, anyway. somewhere we have to be acknowledging that like, whoa, China has a really good government. China's really competent. China's getting a lot done, and yet, 
let's not just hand over the world order to China because that might not actually be a good idea for us to be like ruled from Beijing. But, but even more than that, I would say there's an important part of the story that we didn't um, get the chance to cover in the article, which is how much we're sort of still steeped in a culture of American pride. And you guys were talking right. about the American ego and the American psyche and whatever. And I feel like I'm implicitly still coming very much from a community and from a background where people are here because they still believe in America, right? right? And they're still, they much prefer the freedom of America to other things. Um, and yeah, so, and all the other good things that America has to offer. Yeah, and, and it's a little bit like, you know, their view on America, despite, I would say, the you know, decline over the last uh, little while, is America is much more to them about that promise and that hope. Um, and that's, that's a little bit where we're starting from, um, and, and where I was sort of starting off writing this piece where it's like, it's very much not a, let's all move to China. Right. Um, it's very much a, like, we have, we have this country that has good foundations that we should build up and some things are not going right. What can we do better? Right. And then here's this big example of, first of all, how we might, or, or a lot of inspiration could be taken from it. Um, and then second of all, like, hey, maybe this thing isn't going to work out if we let this competition become one-sided in China's favor. Yeah, and, and I would maybe just say at least it's not it's not entirely one-sided, right? Because we still have sort of U.S. strongholds like no, Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the, yeah, the United, yeah. I, yeah. like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, like, pessimistic or down on the United States. It's like, but but I, I think it is important to, like, yeah, for sure. hit the trajectories, like, let's look at the derivatives here. The derivatives are America's getting worse, China's getting better. Like, that's important. And, you know, even though, you know, we're, we have China surrounded by military bases and we still have, like, a, we control a larger fraction of the world and, like, we're in many cases doing more interesting things than China, like, in particular, you know, what's going on at SpaceX or something. Mm-hmm. Like, China's not hitting us with a Sputnik moment on that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're hitting us with a Sputnik moment on like high-speed trains and so on, which is cool, uh, and I wish we could do that, but it's not at the level of like China's beating us to go to Mars or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe it'll get to that point though if we drop the ball. And I think I think there's an important thing there where like growing up in in Silicon Valley, like growing up halfway between Stanford and San Francisco, like literally, um, there was especially in the 2000s and early 2010s a sentiment around how much can these companies do to make the U.S. great, yeah. and and there was much more hope and belief in in like how far that could go. And I would say over the last um, you know five to eight years, there's been much more resignation around that, where you sort mm. of see the limits of what companies and financial incentives let you do. Um, and I think that that dynamic is also really apparent to me in the U.S.-China dynamic because. Right. China right now is operating primarily driven by good governance. Right. Um, and, and that piece is missing in the U.S. equation. Right. And, and so I think, like, if we can talk about that sort of change over the last, say, 10 years in sure. the Silicon Valley narratives and so on, um, I think some of that is driven, like, that sort of increasing pessimism and resignation is increasing or, or is driven by the kinds of idealism we had 10 years ago turning out to just be completely weird and <laughs> kind of naive. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, like, not to put it all on the governance thing. Like, yeah, we have we have obviously a lot of governance problems. Yeah. Um, but there's this other thing is, like, 
we tend, or at least we had this idealism that was very like utopian, not really thinking through the realities of things like just, you know, just don't be evil, man, kind of thing uh, that I think isn't actually practical in the real world. And some of what's happened in the last few years in Silicon Valley, like some of it's just a decline because of housing crisis and, uh, and other things, but some of it is also a maturation in, in like how we view things. Like yeah. there's more focus now among like, right, Silicon I think, Valley is older now. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that. Um, yes. but there's also more, fo- I mean, the, the Apollo project was like extremely young and extremely optimistic, but like not in a weirdly utopian idealistic way. It was just like, let's put a rocket on the moon, man. Um, but, but yes, yeah, Silicon Valley is older. Um, I just want to like have that caveat that like, it's not necessarily the case that you need to be older. Um, I, I think we can even on, ask... Let me finish this thought. Sure, go So ahead. when I talk to people who are in Silicon Valley and what I consider to be sort of like the more responsible far-thinking circles, I see a lot of evolution towards like, okay, engineers has to, have to be statesmen as well. Like if you look at the, mm-hmm. the past, the great, the great kind of people who got these things done, like how did, uh, how did Fun Brown actually like managed to make Apollo happen while well, it was, you know, in collaboration with Disney and like this huge kind of statecraft effort to actually get the United States government interested in it. You look at how a lot of the stuff that happened back then, you get these characters like Vannevar Bush, who's like, you know, big distinguished scientist, but also a distinguished statesman. Um, and I think there's more consciousness of that now, more consciousness of the need to engage with like the political and governance machine uh, in Silicon Valley. And that's something I actually am optimistic in seeing, even though I think it's like a little bit too little too late still. Uh, I, I still think it's like possible to kind of take that uh, tendency and, and, and grow it. Yeah. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm seeing a change there slowly over the last couple of years in friends who are sort of at, at the major universities where mm-hmm. I have friends who like dropped out of their CS program so that they could go like take a Chinese major, right? Or right. like um to understand China and yeah. be able to do business and yeah, yeah, yeah. etc. But but also just like, you know, it's becoming more, I think, hip in my circles at least, to yeah. go to Washington DC and try to like do things there. Right, and, right. And I, I would say that that feels more new to me. It feels like more revivalist to me. Um, right. There a couple it's like, hey, guys, we're actually in a real world, in a political entity. Maybe <laughs> right, we should right. engage with that political entity and try to make it work. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I would warn against, though, over-estimating um, China's ability to outcompete across vectors of governance, essentially. And so, you know, th- this came up uh, several times when you've discussed, for example, Belt and Road, where... It's this this huge project, maybe just the sheer weight of it and how much has been taken on under that brand can carry the thing forward. But the governance of, of Belt and Road is extremely chaotic. Yeah. Uh, you know, rival projects that sort of contradict each other's geopolitical aims, each getting funding, uh, projects getting approved by rival and totally uncoordinated agencies. You can also look at um, the relationship between China's central government, which probably is its most competent and organized part with more localized uh, or or regional governments 
uh, not the major cities so much, but but especially um, further out in, in, in less developed areas. I mean, the whole reason that, for example, the special economic zones were developed, uh, or, or part of the reason at least, was so that the central government would essentially have space in which to experiment without obstruction from the middle. So China is hardly like this utopian machine of perfect governance. No, of course. And there are yeah, definitely yeah. aspects where we will outcompete them. I would say that um, part of the learning process is essentially looking at where is where is America or other Western countries doing governance correctly and better, and how can that be scaled up? When we're talking about competence as applied to governments, it's never you should never get the picture in your your mind, at least unless talking necessarily about. A, a small department or something but when you're talking about the whole it's never a a clean beautiful machine that is like absolutely finely tuned and 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 works works perfectly or even slightly less perfectly it kind of just lurches forward in kind of cor- sort semi-correct directions and if it has it's a, a political machine if it has a, a few really good fundamentals it can lurch forward in the right direction while being uh, dysfunctional in some of its offshoots, maybe even deeply dysfunctional. But, and, and, and this leads into another point, something I wanted to, to address of, I'm pretty uh, skeptical of, of people who talk about, with, with excessive confidence, about whether China is, is going to like immediately succeed or, or immediately fail. Um, as opposed to, for for example, uh, you know the the challenges that that China faces are are just like inflicting general negative consequences as opposed to undermining the the entire project, because we even have a difficult time evaluating the prospects of of companies even with high fidelity information and high bandwidth. Right. So it's that much more difficult to talk about which specific macro level trends you're looking at that will cause a country, for example, to definitively fail, right? Right. Well, these things are complex systems. It's not necessarily going to be about like just this kind of deterministic evolution of macro level trends. It's going to be all these complex details. Like some guy at some time in in 2026 has to like make sure this particular message gets through or the whole project is off, right? (laughs) So I'll I'll read an article. These moments. I'll read an article. And I'll say, and, and and I'll come away convinced that okay, obviously China has some serious problems, and like, no one ought to doubt this. Yeah, but obviously the holistic picture is Belt and Road is obviously very chaotic. The question is, is that serious enough to undermine the entire project of the general direction they've been going in for the last yeah, forty so years? Yeah, so I think something worth emphasizing on the Belt and Road, um, and and like China's general growing overseas influence is like I, I would say there's sort of three dimensions we might want to characterize like the general competence question in. One is power, the next is efficiency, and the third is direction. Um, like direction is are you sort of aimed at the right kind of strategy broadly? Um, efficiency is how much chaos versus sort of well-executed, project order is there in your system and power is just like how much raw throughput do you have in like ability to um you know do the things you want to do and and so like china is growing very fast in power um and this is like partially related to their essentially marxist 
state strategy, which is, okay, well, if we grow very quickly and very large in economic power, that will become other kinds of power too. Um, and the reason for that is like, it's kind of like a multiplier between these things. Power is really easy to kind of grow without bounds. Efficiency, you know, states and societies are always really low efficiency. So you can always point to a bunch of really nonsense junk going on and like things working at cross purposes and so on. Like imagine, you know, uh, sort of Chinese uh, propagandists in China looking at the American healthcare system, like pointing and laughing, right? Like the same way we do about the Belt and Road thing. It's like, yeah, the thing is screwed, right? It's broken. On the other hand, America is very powerful. And the fact that there's very high inefficiency, you know, doesn't necessarily invalidate that, that very high power level, um, you know, once you multiply them together. And so likewise, I think like the Belt and Road project, um, you know, if China scales up its economic power to be like the dominant world economy, well, like, yeah, okay, there's going to be a bunch of misallocation and inefficiency in the system. But a, a very inefficient, very powerful thing happening is still like, even with the inefficiency factor taken off of the power, it's still very powerful. And then as for direction, like, where is China actually building influence, you know, East Africa, South Africa, um, around the Indian Ocean, getting into Eurasia and so on. Like its actual strategic direction seemed to be sound. Like if you look at China's actual strategic interests, it's like, okay, make sure that China has access to the Indian Ocean. If China has access to the Indian Ocean, it's in a good position. If China does not have access to the Indian Ocean, it's in a bad position. And China is, sure enough, building a lot of infrastructure around there. And, and, even beating out the West in those places, uh, like Zimbabwe recently, right? Like Zimbabwe uh, had that coup. It turned out to be related to to Chinese uh, influence. Same similar things happening in South Africa, though not a coup, but definitely lots of Chinese influence. Now, there. Wolf, I saw a military man on TV telling me that that was not a coup. Are you <laughs> saying yeah, yeah, he was yeah. wrong? <laughs> no, look, okay. Well, maybe it wasn't a coup. It was, you know, they they put. Uh, Mr. Mr. Mugabe uh, away for his own good and for the good of the country um, and the good of China, of course. Um, I knew I could but whatever it was, whatever it was, China was gaining an influence in East Africa. He needed so, to like, sp- let's he needed not just sp- count the fact that they're they're like correctly going after their strategic interests with a large amount of power. And yeah, it's inefficient, but it's always inefficient. So, uh, like like case study samples of like, look, this thing is cross purposes to that thing doesn't doesn't uh doesn't give you the whole story and and the whole story overall is like okay look they're actually doing pretty well at this at at the the things they're actually trying to do i think what what really happened is that mugabe took the typical resignation route of a republican congressman which is he wants to spend some more time with his family and he's going to become an occasional fox news contributor (laughs) (laughs) but i would i would say that you know back to china um the you can't talk about it like it's a monolith. Right. But, you know, that being said... It's it, maybe more of a monolith in the United States, though. Uh, sure, yeah. Well, well, that and, and also it is, I think, worth looking at sort of what the global output of that is like, especially like if you just go visit the place and right. sort of what is the feeling of that place. And I think, you know, 10 years ago um, or, you know, 20 years ago, there was a lot of uncertainty to me about, you know, what this admittedly non-monolithic thing like what is it doing what it's doing for who is it for 
Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was more of an open question for me, where you have a lot of rhetoric around how the politicians are going to make things better for China and the Chinese people, but like China, which Chinese people, right? Which exactly, China, yeah, right. Yeah. And then how many of them? And and the situation ten years ago wasn't. It was still really unclear. It was like people were being asked to make all of these trade-offs, um, you know, even to the point where like you know don't have more than one kid, and and that's a big deal in Chinese families. Um, and a big loss, and I think there are a lot of sort of yeah. consequences that they're dealing with um, in this generation because of that. Um, and you're asking your people to make all of these trade-offs, and you know they're living in these smoke-filled cities, and like they're working tirelessly, and and then to see that transform into a situation where sort of four Han Chinese people, which is a lot of Chinese people, it's um, eight hundred million, I think. <laughs> um, like seeing the quality of life actually improve, you know, you can't say that that's because the Chinese government, you know, the monolith is like well-intentioned towards the people, but you can at least say that whatever systems they're running is outputting something that also benefits the people, even if yeah. there are other motivations. Yeah. Well, it's like the, I mean, if you think about it from a purely like, let's say I'm a cynical party man and, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, what should the party do? Um, it's the, the party basically owns the country, owns the people, and therefore, at the very least, wants them to be like optimistic and healthy and etc. In, in like all the ways that are actually useful to the party. Yeah. Um, and that's just to get started with like, you suppose you have no security problems. And then like, uh, then there's the whole legitimacy question. Well, the party's legitimacy is actually predicated on making communism real, which means in, in China, communism yeah. means we all get rich, um, which seems like a pretty good definition. Um, and, and so, like, you know, they also have this legitimacy imperative to treat the, treat the population uh, so that they're happy. Yeah. At least most of them. Yeah. I mean, and, and I feel like there's an interesting question of, it feels to me like they've gone significantly beyond that, because I think right. the living standards were such that this current level of, of condition is, like, ma magnificent to people. Mm -hmm. um, that's, and... that's why I was very pleased with the piece, because if you're just looking at the economic data um, outputted, outputted by the Chinese government, you can make the case that a lot of it's fabricated um, fine, yeah. but actually being there uh, and the, the psychological experience... Uh, that you have as a visitor and the psychological experience of the people on the ground and their optimism and trust with respect to the system. I mean, I don't imagine that Ipsos's 2017 survey worldwide on trust in government um, recorded uh, the response is entirely wrong for for the Chinese people. I mean, there's and a the reason. The numbers being like 70-something percent. It's thinking the country's going in a good direction. Yes, and that's that's a relative to a forty percent average, I think. In America, uh, no, that that worldwide forty five worldwide, but and it was yeah. or forty something worldwide, and I think it was about that in America as well, right? I don't remember. Certainly, it's higher in China than America. <laughs> yes. Though I recommend people look at that survey. Yeah. Um, but that that is a stark contrast to the situation we find ourselves in in America in twenty nineteen, which is that. Um, basically, every public institution is burning as much credibility as it can as fast as possible. And yeah, 
I'm not really seeing a linear increase in trust in in any of the institutions, with the exception that the, the military still seems to get a pretty decent rating. Other than that, um, trust is quite quite low, and I'm not seeing any uh, credible efforts to reverse that at all, like anywhere, basically. On that note, though, there's uh, a topic that I just want to open up toward the end here, uh, and it kind of... This is something I noticed with uh, a section or a sub-segment, if you want, of the critical responses to the piece. And uh, some of these people were, uh, I would basically describe them as like new cold warriors, people who kind of seem very committed for one reason or another to the idea of essentially we uh, are, are either already in or should be thinking about the Chinese relationship as a new cold war. And the object there is some kind of containment, if not overthrow. I think that this has been very, um, like that sentiment uh, has been accelerated recently because of the events in Hong Kong. And you've certainly seen a lot of people taking that, uh, the situation there with the protests and the crackdown as an opportunity to basically say that America needs to stand up more assertively for uh, for Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, but also for dissidents uh, on the mainland itself. And there there's kind of, I would imagine that there are two energies uh, in this new Cold Warrior segment. Uh, the one is kind of authentically committed to this sort of dream that seemed pretty much dead of a sort of liberal democratic change or upheaval in China um, I find this to be, in a sense, the less credible one because uh, you only need to look at the end of the first cold. You mean the the idea that China would, the, the idea that the China idea would specific, well specifically uh-huh. the idea that the collapse of uh, the CCP and the regime in Beijing would precipitate a turn to liberal democracy. Uh, it's this is fascinating to me because the end of the first cold war pretty much should disprove that. I mean. And if you look within China itself, uh, when there is criticism, right, of, of, of Xi and the CCP on the Chinese internet, but often it's not usually from, you know, liberals in China. It's from like ultra nationalists who think that he needs to just be, you know, way more aggressive in the South China Sea or against Japan and so on. Yeah. If you had the collapse uh, happen, my prediction would be, you know, some entrepreneurial mid-ranking military man weaponizes these like nationalist sentiments and creates an, maybe a weakened regime in some ways, but a much more aggressive one. Um, well, that sounds an awful lot like Japan before the Second World War. Right, exactly. Uh, and it would certainly, you know, and their policy on on something like Hong Kong or Taiwan would be far more confrontational. Uh, at best, I would I would think, you know, and and this gets into maybe maybe there's like some kind of malevolently realist new Cold Warrior version of this where like you're not really interested in liberal reform, but it's quite useful to be in a Cold War. And not just, you know, you can have the discussion on military, industrial complex, and so on. But in fact, in wartime, you get unity and coordination domestically that is very unique. And maybe uh, well, some of these people... <laughs> you, you, you have an excuse to create unity and... Uh, unity domestically, and but if you're not actually competent to the task, then war just 
Constantly. Right, right. But I'm thinking of like, what is the calculation being made here? Because I mean, uh, I, I think certainly with the neoconservative Wait, yeah, project, the old, the that was an explicit part of the whole of the whole thing. And there's, I, I think we will see a, a kind of new generation um, that kind of is equivalent to the neoconservatives who see an opportunity for national unity in this new Cold War. Uh, and and this let's unite ourselves over war. Yeah, well, well I, but this this uh, you know I I think on the political level, um, the the situation that allows that to arise is what happens when you have these two great powers existing in the world. There is natural conflict, and there's incentive on both sides yeah. to accelerate yeah. rather than uh, you know give way to cooperation. So uh, the. So, so I want to I want to make a point here about what co- what kind of thing that it is that we're running, and fine if the uh, you know American Cold Warriors want another Cold War with China, fine, go ahead and do that. But I don't think that by being clear headed and giving rigorous analysis of what we genuinely see to be like what's actually happening in China, I don't think that we're disrupting that goal. If we had sort of styled ourselves as a as a mass publication to, you know, put newspapers on the front of everyone's door and we were constantly running content about why life in China is really, really, really good and amazing and you should feel bad and terrible and you're going to lose, it's like, okay, fine. So yeah, that, that's like demoralization propaganda. That's demoralization. Right. Palladium is not that kind of... We, yeah, we only want to bully the elite in America to make sure that... Because we know they can handle it. <laughs> I mean, America needs to be bullied, right? Like this is this is again the the thesis that I one of the theses that I had sort of behind my appreciation of the piece was like America's ego is too big. We're too full of ourselves. We believe far too much in our own nonsense. You know, we were talking earlier about like China just you know achieving prosperity by completely being in in uh, in opposition to all the things we were claiming were necessary for prosperity. It's like yeah, America is. Uh, full of it uh, on a bunch of this stuff and and we need to like get smacked over the head with some facts um and and yeah like obviously i don't think the general population should have to be smacked over the head too much it's not their fault uh and it's not really useful to have have people demoralized but i do think that people who are who are really sort of confident in what america is currently doing um it need need to see that alternate uh need to see that alternate if you read the piece facts. if you read the piece and you were demoralized and thought about defecting to china you read the wrong piece <laughs> that wasn't what the piece was about so yeah certainly and you should stay out of governance <laughs> yeah yeah um, uh but i i think that you know a lesson that we can take from the Cold War is that when economic development, right, which is the basis for so much more that like becomes possible both for states and for people, when that development is, and I, I would say this development is always political. There is essentially no escape um, from that. However, when it's basically considered that there's a trade-off between people developing who aren't like firmly on your side. Uh, and essentially war, that's like, you are going to have permanent instability because uh, when when development occurs, 
uh, if it's not in your camp, you have to oppose it, and thereby you have to ensure conditions of poverty or instability, which you then have to police. And that I don't think this is sustainable at all. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, insofar that's as there evil. was like. Insofar as there was, I think, some kind of noble ideal in parts of the liberal internationalist project, I think it was some sense that, like, you have to be able to have people develop themselves and and participate in prosperity without it automatically leading to war. Uh, obviously, this does not seem to have actually worked in the way they intended, but that means, that just means that that problem has to be resolved outside of the liberal international framework. So so that's actually really interesting now that you bring that up, just that, that the valence on that has flipped, right? Like liberalism used to be, oh yeah, let's let everyone develop um, and, and achieve prosperity and then we'll somehow find a way to all get along. Um, and now it seems to be like it's, it's really liberalism that has a problem with Chinese development uh, and... I guess it's because China isn't kind of going along with liberalism. Um, yeah, well, the the uh, assertion was that that, devel- that that development, that you could have stability because development and liberalism were somehow intertwined. And right. if that was what the liberal international project was reliant on, that assumption, then clearly it's no longer tenable. Right, and, and China has shown that assumption to be false, essentially, and therefore, like, actually liberalism has already kind of stopped believing in its own uh, its own stance there and, and adopted just like a more, you know, liberalism is, is right. just the this correct, is the real threat. The- liberalism is just this way of thinking that you have to go along with or we're going to attack you. And and that's interesting. It's like a degradation of the idealism of liberalism. Yeah, and, and this is this is a concretely political problem that essentially we have to resolve. And I mean, again, uh, open to any potential writers who are listening, uh, anyone who'd like to tackle this problem, would be very interested in it. Yeah, let's definitely think about it a lot more. Well, we've reached the hour ten mark. Uh, if there's if there's anything left we need to get in, we should do that. Otherwise. I think this has been a fantastic episode, and um, thanks for coming on, Jean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, All right. there's always a lot more to say, but uh, I think it was <laughs> yeah. good. We China's ha- we, a big topic. We have to get <laughs> yeah, it off China's somewhere. China is a big place. I mean, yeah, we, we should be talking about China five times as much as America, because there's five times as many Chinese people as <laughs> there are Americans. Yeah. That's one way of doing it. Yeah, we'll do a five-hour <laughs> podcast or something. Oh, God. All right, everyone, thanks Thanks for coming on. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed the discussion, and, and, and we'll see you all next week. All right, thanks, guys.